Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to 2 Samuel 21. Quite near the end of the book now, just a couple more accounts to consider. The uh, book ends in 24, so we have 21, 22, 23, 24. title of the sermon, Swear Not at All, um, we say that God is just, we, we hope in God's justice, we trust in God's purposes, and we trust that we are on the right side of God's purposes. Sometimes, however, we, we fail to remember um, that God's justice has a long mem- memory. God is a God of equity. He's a God of balance. This evening, we are going to look at an account where we see a a vow made hundreds of years previous that was broken during the administration of the previous king of Israel come back to haunt David during his kingdom and in his administration. And as we consider this, the first thing we are tempted to do is say, wow, how unfair. But as we look through it, we'll see a clear line of God's reasoning and God's justice. And as we do so, we're going to learn some lessons. We're going to to kind of pare it down to something a bit more simple as we consider vows and oaths and what they mean to the Lord and what they mean for us today. So we're going to walk through all 22 verses of 2 Samuel 21 this evening and then learn some lessons about vows. The scriptures tell us in verse 1, Then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. So the situation as it presents itself is that there is a three-year famine in the land of Israel. And this is unusual, right? This is not what you would expect in Israel. It's unusual because of the unique relationship that the nation has with God. God promised them in Leviticus 26, verses 1 through 13, and it's going to be a little bit of reading here. Ye shall make you no idols, nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall ye set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season and the land shall yield her increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and your threshing shall reach unto the vintage and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time and ye shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely and I will give peace in the land and ye shall lie down and none shall make you afraid and I will rid evil beasts out of the land neither shall the sword go through your land and ye shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword and five of you shall chase a hundred and an hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword for I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you and ye shall eat old store And bring forth the old because of the new, and I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that ye should not be their bondsmen, and I have broken the bands of your yoke, and made you go upright." 
Uh, Within the scope of this covenant God made with Israel, he promised that if they are rightly related to him through the covenant, if they are doing what is right before him, that they would be blessed. And a part of this blessing from early in in the Excuse me, in the passage we just read, a part of that blessing was that they would always have rain in due season and that the the crops would always yield their fruit. There would be no famine in the land if they're doing right, simply put. So you might think, okay, they get through the first season and it's not a good season. Maybe it's just the way seasons roll. But into the second and third year, there's clearly something wrong here. On a national level, they ought to expect that anytime there was a famine, there's a, a sin problem between them and God. They are not doing something right. Now, we can't necessarily say that all the time today because we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. But then, Israel could bank on that because God had promised them constant rain, constant good things if they would follow him. So the famine's gone on for three years. The day of atonement was not sufficient to remove whatever judgment was upon them for this sin. The daily sacrifices were not doing it. It was not lifting it. So David inquires of the Lord, what's going on, God? Why is there this famine in the land? And God tells him that it's a judgment because of Saul and his bloody house Because they slew the Gibeonites. Now the Gibeonites were a group of Canaanites descended from the people of Ammon at the time of Israel's entrance into the promised land. We read the account of them in Joshua 9. They, having heard of this group of people, this nation of Israel that was going through the land, destroying everything, were greatly fearful, the people of Gibeon were. So they dressed up in rags and they got moldy bread And they approached the camp and they said, we are from a far off land and we have heard of your great terror and your power and we want to make a covenant with you. Well, God had told the nation of Israel, do not make a covenant with anyone in the land. You may not. And and so they look at the rags that they're wearing and they look at the moldy bread and they say, oh, clearly they've come from far. Okay, fine, we'll make a covenant with you, no problem. And they fail to inquire of the Lord. And so because they failed to inquire of the Lord, God would have said, no, don't make a covenant with them, they're liars. But they failed to inquire of the Lord. So they made this covenant with the people of the land. Now they have a covenant with Gibeon. And they swore by the Lord that they would do this nation no harm. When Israel learned of their error, however, it was too late. They had already made an oath. They had already vowed before the Lord that they would not destroy this people. It was done. It was sealed. They were now bound to this people, the Gibeonites. And so what they did instead is they made them their servants, their bondsmen. And they made them specifically, the text tells us, servants in the house of God. During the days of Saul and David, even into the times following the captivity, the Gibeonites would be faithful servants in the house of God. Even in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, when all the people, when when actually a very few number relatively come back from Babylon, the Gibeonites are a part of the group that came back to be a part of ministering in the temple. So explicitly, the account of the Gibeonites being destroyed by Saul is not recorded in the scriptures. We don't have an explicit account that we can turn to and say, oh, yep, that's where Saul destroyed the Gibeonites. There's a possibility 
that their destruction is found in 1 Samuel 22. If you recall, David has just fled from Saul for the first time, and he runs to the tabernacle, which is in Nam. And as they're there, David lies to Ahimelech, the high priest, and says that um, he's there with a group, and he's on a, uh, an errand for Saul, and he needs food. And Ahimelech gives him the bread, the showbread from the tabernacle, and he gives him Goliath's sword, and David runs off, and he runs to the Philistines' land. And then Saul gets angry, because there was a man in the tabernacle at the time, and his name was Doeg. And Doeg was the chief herdsman, he was an Edomite, and the chief herdsman of Saul. And he goes to Saul and he says, I saw Ahimelech helping David. And so Ahimelech is called before Saul and questioned. And Ahimelech says, look, David told me he was not an errand for you. Do I have any reason to question your general? When your general comes up to me and says, I'm on a secret mission for my king, I have no reason to question that. Saul says, you're a liar. And, and he tells the people that are around him, kill him and kill all the high priests. Well, of course, they're not going to, people around him are afraid to kill the priests. So he looks at Doeg and says, Doeg, kill them. And Doeg kills not just the high priest, but everyone that wears a linen ephod and their families. Kills everybody. Now, if the Gibeonites were ministering in the temple, in the tabernacle, it's quite possible that they may have been a part of that slaughter. And that may have been the accounting question. We don't know. It doesn't explicitly say. But since the Gibeonites were charged with ministering in the tabernacle, that kind of makes sense. Either way, Saul had done this. He had gone into the Gibeonites and he had destroyed them thinking that he was zealous for the Lord when in fact he was doing wrong. We'll see that in verse 2. And the problem is that Israel had sworn by the Lord not to destroy the Gibeonites. And God does not take an oath given in his name lightly. So Saul was dead. His family had been rejected with leadership. David is now the king. His family is leading Israel. But Israel was still under the curse because it was a national promise given to these people. And the king, who was a representative of the nation, broke that promise. And now the king, who's the representative of the nation, needs to make good on, on the breach. Verse 2 says, the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, and then we see a parenthetical, now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnants of the Amorites, and the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. So Saul was a nationalist, and he said, we are nationalists, we, 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 we want our, our land clean, these Gibeonites are not like us, kill them. And he ignored the fact that there was a covenant with them in his zeal for nationalism. So we learn that they're Amorites. We learn that, that there was that, this covenant. Verse 3 says, as David continues speaking to the Gibeonites, wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make atonement? that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord. So David says, what can I do to make up for this? How can we repair this breach of this vow that was made between Israel and your people? He wants to make atonement. He's not arguing with the Lord here. He says, Lord, this is just, this is right. The representative of the nation failed. And now the nation is at fault. And that's a, that's a right thing. And so he says, Gibeonites, how can we make this up to you? And the Gibeonites say this in verse 4. 
We, have, we will have no silver nor gold of Saul, nor any of his house, neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, what you shall say, that will I do for you. So the Gibeonites explicitly state what they don't want here. First they say, we don't want Saul's filthy money. We don't want anything from him. We don't want anything having association with him. We don't want money and we don't want his land. They wanted nothing from this man who was so horrible to them. Now the next phrase is a bit strange. We'll have to think about it carefully. In our King James it says, Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. Why this is interesting, because if you look in the next verse, they demand lives. The lives of Saul's family. So, So what's going on here? Well, notice the statement. It doesn't say... We, won't, we don't want the lives of anyone. It says, for us, thou shalt not kill anyone. In other words, we don't want you to do the justice. We want to be the ones. We don't want you to kill people. We want to be the ones to take the blood. We don't, I hope you see the distinction there. We don't want thou that, neither for us shalt thou not kill, or shalt, shalt not thou Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. There we go. You won't do it for us. Effectively, we'll do it for ourselves. You give us the authority, and we'll take care of it. Because only David had the authority to to meet the sentence out. It's not that they don't want blood. It's just they don't have the authority to take the blood themselves. David, give us the authority to avenge the blood of our people. Verses 5 and 6. They answered the king, The man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up uh, up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. So the people ask David to give them seven descendants, seven sons of Saul, that they may hang them. And notice where. You realize Saul set up his capital in Gibeah, the very place where the Gibeonites had lived was his capital. It was his place. It was his base of operation. And so they say, we're going to go back to Gibeah of Saul and we're going to hang these people in our city that was named after us um, for the blood that Saul spilled. And the king agrees to their conditions. Verses 7 and 8. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. So the text is careful to mention, first of all, that the king spared Saul's grandson and Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. This was the man who was lame in his feet, and he did this because... David had sworn to Jonathan while Jonathan was still alive. Jonathan says, swear unto me that you will be good to my descendants. Swear an oath. David swore that oath. So he is making good on that oath. He's not going to kill Mephibosheth. But, so what he does is he takes first the two sons of Rizpah. Rizpah was one of Saul's concubines. We read about her in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Way back in chapter 3, verse 7. This was the concubine that um, Ishbosheth rebuked his... Uh, uncle Abner about, said, why did you, uncle, go into my father's concubine, Rizpah? Because when a man would go into the concubine of a king, that was a statement of power, a statement of wanting to overthrow the current ruling power. And of course, Saul was dead, but they were Ishbosheths now. They were not Abner's. 
and Abner, that's when Abner decides he's not going to work with Ishbosheth anymore. He's going to give the kingdom over to David. So we saw her come up. She had two sons named Armoni and Mephibosheth. And um, David gives those two sons over to be killed. And then he also took the five sons of Michael, his own wife and Saul's daughter. Remember, this was Saul's daughter, his first wife. Sons which she had had with Adriel, the son of Barzillai, before, when when. Michael had been promised to David, and then when David fled, Saul gave her to Adriel, and they had lived together for probably 10 years before David came back and took her back and uh, never had a child with her because of how she um, rebuked him as he danced before the Lord when they brought the, the Ark of the Covenant back in. So he never had any ch- children with her himself, but he took the five children that she had raised for Adriel. And um, there's... Pr- this And... Let me mention as well, this Barzillai is not the Barzillai we came up to last week, the one who David honored for helping him when he fled from his son, um, Absalom. This is not that same Barzillai. That Barzillai was Barzillai the Gileadite. This is Barzillai the Moholathite. So it's a different man. And David takes these five children. Uh, She was a lesser wife. He, she had deeply offended him, and he probably had absolutely no vested interest in them at all. So he allowed them to be five of those who were hung. Verse 9, And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. So the seven men, uh, all grandchildren of Saul, were given to the Gibeonites, probably all full-grown men, um, certainly all full-grown men at this point. And they were hanged before the Lord during the beginning of the barley harvest. This would have been in April, about the time of the Passover. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. Um, around the time of Passover is barley, and then around the time of Pentecost is, is wheat. In the verse, uh, chap- uh, verse 10 tells us, And Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until the water dropped upon them out of heaven. And suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. So following this horrible event, Rizpah has just lost her two sons. She took sackcloth uh, and used it presumably as a bed. Some people say as a tent, others say as a bed. And she rested in the field and literally she slept in the field under the bodies of her sons while they hung there. Now, it was required by law, specifically in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, that a person that's hung on a tree or impaled upon a staff, so if they're either hung or they're impaled, would be taken off before evening. And that was a part of the law. Uh, Presumably so that the bodies would not suffer the further indignity of beasts coming and picking at them at the night. Um, Also a sanitary issue and such. So that was in the law. However, in this case, this was the payment of a vow. And the sign that they could be removed is when the vow is satisfied, when the Lord is satisfied. And so they left him hanging there until the Lord was satisfied. Now, it's possible, seeing there was a famine in the land, that when it says that she stayed there until water dropped out of heaven, that she was going to stay until water fell. If, If the famine was accompanied by a drought, it may be that she stayed there until the drought was lifted. Or it may simply mean that she stayed until the rainy season, which would have been... October, April to October, as she camped outside. Uh, And and her reason for being there was to chase the birds and the beasts away. 
so that her sons would not suffer the indignity of being eaten by beasts after they were dead. Now, this event touches the heart of David. Verses 11 and 12. And it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, which had stolen them from the streets, street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them when the Philistines had slain Saul in Gilboa. So David hears of this selfless act of protecting these bodies, and his heart is touched, so much so that he goes to Jabesh-Gilead. The Gileadites of Jabesh were the valiant men that we read about in 1 Samuel 31. They, having heard that the Philistines had routed the armies of Israel and taken the body of Saul, of Jonathan, and, and Saul's other two sons that had been slain, and they hung them on the wall of their city as a sign of, of great victory, right, over the king. And the, men, the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead broke through, stole those bodies back, and buried them in Jabesh-Gilead, and then they fasted seven days. So David goes, and he, he, he goes to them, and he says, where did you bury those bodies? He tells them, he, un, he exhumes them, and he takes their bones. Verse 13 and 14. And he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged, and the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin in Zelah, in the sepulcher of Kish his father. And they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the land. So David takes the bones of Saul, Jonathan, and the seven hanged men, and he honors them by burying them in the tomb of, their, of Saul's father, Kish. So he honors them all there and tries to, to give an honorable burial, an honorable end, an honorable finale to this very dishonorable situation. Saul died in rebellion. Jonathan died following his dad into battle, as did Jonathan's brothers and Saul's sons. And then Saul's five grandsons here are now dead because of his sin on a national scale. And so David just finishes. And the scriptures tell us that at the conclusion of all of this mess, that God is entreated for the land, that the famine is broken. Continuing in verse 15. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. The remainder of the chapter speaks again of war. So we're kind of transitioning now to uh, a different topic. We'll come back to all that we just studied when we get to our, our application. But now we're transitioning just kind of to more summary. And in this summary, David and his servants go to fight another war with the Philistines. But there's a difference this time, and the scriptures say, David waxed faint. He's getting old at this point. And as he's getting old, he, he can't fight as well. He gets tired in the battle easier. And this is going to cause a bit of a problem. Verse 16 and 17, we read this. And Ishbibinab, which was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, and being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more with us out to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. So we, first, we read first of Ishbibinab, and this is one of the sons of the giant. And of course, if you read 
the giant in Scripture. We're talking about Goliath, one of the sons of Goliath. So Goliath's son uh, probably has kind of a personal vendetta against David, right? You would think, at least. And so he is fighting David, and David is waxing faint. He's getting tired. He's going to die. And so Abishai, who is his nephew, one of the sons of Zeruiah, who wants to lop off everyone's heads, he comes up and he suckers him, right? He, he rescues him. He takes care. He, he jumps into the battle, and he helps his king and his uncle, and he kills Ishbibanab. Um, when it says that, that um, the weight of his spear was 300 shekels, that's an eight-pound brass head on the end of that spear. To be able to manipulate an eight-pound brass head on the end of a long spear, this guy was big too. Okay, We're talking about another big guy. And he had a new sword as well. Probably means that he had a sword in his sheath that he did not use until he was ready to kill David. That sword was going to be wet with David's blood first. Kind of like that guy, if you've ever seen one of those movies where a guy carries around a pistol with a shot and that shot is saved for a certain person and he won't shoot anybody but that person with that pistol, that was this sword. This was David's sword. This was the sword to kill David. Ishbibanab was ready to kill David and he would have if Abishai had not jumped in and taken care of it. So David was weary. Abishai replaces him, kills the Philistine. And this is a close call. And it's enough for his servants to say, look, you're not coming out with us anymore. You don't get to fight with us anymore. You're you're tired and we can't risk you. There may be a double meaning in here. You're, You're hurting the cause, maybe a part of the meaning of not dimming the light of Israel. But also, hey, look, you're the light of Israel, David. You're the king. How silly would it be for you to die in battle just because you're an old man that refuses to give up your warring ways? Stay, stay home. Let us fight the battles. So this would be the last time David fights. Verses 18 and 19. And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Uh, then Sebekai, the Hushathite, slew Tsaf, which was one of the sons of the giant. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregim, a Bethlehemite slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So, a couple more battles here. In one of the battles, we have another one of Goliath's sons killed. And then in the second battle, we have a brother of Goliath killed, one who is not named. So, Goliath's family is whittling down quickly uh, through David's lineage and we recount several battles here, probably over the course of months, if not years. Now, our chapter finishes in verses 20 and 22, where we read this. And there was yet a battle in Gath, where was a man of great stature, and had on every hand six fingers, and on every foot six toes, four and twenty in number. And he also was born to the giant. And when he defied Israel... Jonathan, the son of Shimea, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hands of David and by the hand of his servants. So we see Goliath's lineage here uh, greatly reduced as his sons are killed. That would be Goliath's sons are killed. And so ends the chapter. The chapter ends with a recounting of all of the Posterity of Goliath being killed. As we step into our application today, we're going to go back to that vow. 
That's where we're going to kind of root our thinking here. The vow that Israel made with the Gibeonites, the vow that was broken by Saul, the vow that had to be repaid by David. Vows are not something that we talk about much in Christianity anymore. And it's perhaps to our detriment. Because we, I believe, at least as I was you know, growing up and such, um, there's still a temptation in our hearts to make vows unto the Lord. For we who understand who God is and know God, there's a temptation in our hearts to vow. And, and it's not wrong to make vows unto God. But the problem is that in this age, we don't necessarily seem to hold those vows to much weight. We don't give them much weight. And this is an error. This is a problem. See, we don't live in a culture where vows have weight anymore, where swearing unto the Lord has weight anymore. A promise made is not always a promise kept. We will, in just a couple of months, see a person presumably put his hand on a Bible, raise his hand, and swear an oath to the Constitution before God with his hand on the Bible. Every single time a person goes into court, they swear that they will tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. They are swearing an oath in the name of God. And yet, lies are excessively prevalent in politics and in courtrooms. We don't really think that... In, the reason why that was put into place is because there was a time where people recognized that an oath unto the Lord meant something. And that God expects something when we make an oath in His name or when we vow a vow unto Him. There's an expectation. And we're going to learn about that, talk about that a little bit at, in, in three points of application. First, I'd like us to consider the difference between a vow and an oath. And it's important that we understand the difference between a vow and an oath, particularly um, because people seem to get them confused. A vow is a solemn promise made, sometimes conditional upon a favor or an outcome, sometimes not. Uh, we see vows throughout the Old Testament where a man promises something to God, oftentimes in return for a favor or a blessing. So Jacob flees from his brother Esau after he had stolen the blessing, and he ends up in a place called Bethel. And God, we see, he sees Jacob's ladder, right? The angels ascending and descending. And after all of that, and God promising to bring him back to the land, Jacob says, if you will be my God, or if you will bring me back into the land, then I will be yours. You will be my God, and I will serve you. There's a vow there. If you do what you've promised to do, considering that you have promised to bring me back into the land, you are now my God. You are the God I have chosen to follow and to serve. There's a vow there that, that he would keep. Uh, we see, of course, one of the most famous vows in the Old Testament in Judges 11, Jephthah's vow, right? Jephthah goes out to battle and he tells God, God, if you will give me victory in this battle, then when I come back, the first thing that comes out to greet me, I will sacrifice to you. And it happens to be his daughter that comes out to greet him after he comes back victorious from the battle. And so the scriptures say she went and spent some time bewailing a virginity and then he performed his vow unto the Lord. And there's debate as to what that means. Uh, some people don't want to believe that she was actually sacrificed to the Lord. Some people think it means that she was just a perpetual virgin. Um, and then others believe that she was truly sacrificed unto the Lord uh, in the manner that Jephthah seemed to vow. Uh, we can fight that battle another day. But uh, that would be a vow. A vow unto the Lord. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. You, you hear about these things in the wars, right? Person's 
hurt or dying or in a bad situation. God, if you get me out of this, I will. And then sometimes that changes a person's life. And they say, I vowed unto the Lord, and so I was going to keep it. And those sorts of things. And, and so we see vows taking place. Uh, the Old Testament law was, co- was filled with commands concerning vows. If a vow was made by a, a man to the Lord, it, it was permanent. Nothing you could do to undo that vow if you made a vow unto the Lord. If a woman made a vow, it had to be ratified by her husband or father. If her father hears about the vow or husband hears about the vow and says, nuh-uh, and he invalidates the vow, it's invalidated. But if he hears of it and he does nothing or he affirms it, then she's bound to it. So women and children were only held binding if their authority agreed to it. Male authorities, however, were, were, had no way of annulling a vow. Uh, the vow would have to be paid. An oath is different from a vow. A, a, an oath is, uh, a vow is a solemn promise. An oath is where you appeal to a higher authority to prove the truth of your words. When you hear a person say, I swear to God, what they are doing is they're attempting to appeal to God as an authority, basically saying, as God is my witness, this is true. That's kind of what happens in the courtroom, right? I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. As God is my witness, this is true. You are appealing to the highest authority possible. You know, some people will say, I swear on the grave of my grandmother or whatever. What they are doing there is they are appealing to something they care about. As if, if I were lying, I would defile that person or that memory. And so you can rest assured that I am not lying because I am appealing to something that I wouldn't want defiled. I wouldn't want that memory defiled. It's a way of, of trying to convince somebody that what you are saying is true. As if... Uh, you should be more inclined to believe them that, that what they're saying is true because you've invoked the authority of the Almighty to witness against them. Now, in the Old T- Testament, we often found men who, sweared, who, who, who would swear by the Lord. In fact, David did this with Jonathan, right? He actually he made a vow unto the Lord with Jonathan, but he swore by the Lord to Shimei last week that he would not destroy him. I swear by the Lord that I will not destroy you. A vow unto Jonathan, but he swore by the Lord. He made an oath uh, of truth unto Shimei. David also um, swore, yeah, he swore many oaths in his time. We won't go through them for sake of time this evening, but... Um, a vow is a solemn and binding promise. An oath is, an estate, is a statement which invokes the character of God, typically, as the witness to your statement. And the Bible gives us instruction concerning each of these. And that's going to take up our, our final two points. First, we're going to talk about vows. And as we think about vows, let me just say this. Consider fearfully any vow you would make to God. Vows are not forbidden in the word of God. But they ought to be approached with a fearful warning that God does require the vows that men make. And there's nothing in the Bible to invalidate that for the New Testament, for believers today, or for unbelievers for that matter. There's nothing in the Word of God that ever invalidates God holding men to their vows. Any vow you make before God ought to be done with fear. And with confidence that it's worth it and that you can make good on your vow because God takes them seriously. 
the most common vow that we find in Christian circles today is what we call our wedding vows. Today, those vows are just considered words. But every time there's a divorce among Christians who stood before God and vowed before God, they are breaking a solemn vow unto God. If they made it in the context of vowing to one another before God, it's a vow between them and God. And that ought to be taken very seriously. Today those vows are just words. They don't matter if we break them, but it does matter to God. Consider what the Bible says. We'll begin in Deuteronomy 23, 21, and 22. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not be slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. But if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall not be sin to thee. In other words, if you vow a vow, make good on it. It's not wrong not to vow unto God. You can do it, but it's not wrong not to. Because if you vow, you, you're, you're going to be held accountable. So only vow if it really matters. Don't vow otherwise. Even more potent, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. Solomon, the wise man, says, When thou vowest to vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldst not vow than that thou shouldst vow and not pay. And this is in the wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes. This is a man who tried all things under the sun. This is a man who had gone in every direction and came back to that conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. If you make a vow unto God, Solomon says, defer not to pay. Obviously, the most common vow is marriage, which one vows to another before God, often vowing to God that a man and woman will bind themselves together as one. But there's other reasons why a person might vow to God. When our heart longs for something, we might make, make a vow unto God. God, if you will just give me that, I will do this for you. If you will blank for me, I will blank for you. Those are vows. Perhaps we've made those vows. If you've made one of those vows, well, I was young, well, I was this. If you made a vow to God, you should not defer to pay it. If you ask God to give you that job and you vow Him something in return, give Him that thing in return if He gives you that job. If you ask God to heal you and you vow something in return, give Him what you vowed Him in return. God, if you heal me, I'll serve you. Well, serve Him. If you ask God for something, if you vow to Him something in return, Simply put, don't disappoint him. Do not defer to pay. Better that you shouldn't vow than that you should vow and not pay. And it's not a sin not to vow. Those vows have weight with God. Far better simply to not make the vow than to vow and not pay. Third, final application. First, we consider the difference between a vow and an oath. And as far as vows go, consider them fearfully. Be careful. But with oaths, don't. Don't swear oaths. Just tell the truth. Don't swear oaths. Just tell the truth. Don't swear by God. Now, if you're in a courtroom and they ask you, so help me God, you're kind of in a place there, right? I guess that's up to you. Maybe an obey God rather than men situation. 
Don't invoke his name to prove a point or to prove your truthfulness. If you uh, say something, just make sure that what you say is true. Every time. In the Ten Commandments, we read this. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The idea behind this is that you should not swear false, false, false oaths. That's specifically what this means. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, because that's what Jesus says. Matthew 5, verse 33 to 37. Again, Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said of them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black, but let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than this, cometh, these cometh of evil. So Jesus says, you've heard of old time that if you swear by the Lord, then you had better be right. That you, because God takes that seriously too. If you are lying when you swear to God, there is something there. You are invoking God as witness against your truthfulness when you're not being truthful, and that is a dangerous place to be. So, in the Old Testament, the idea was, if you're going to swear by the Lord, you had better be telling the truth. This is why when David says, I swear by the Lord, it basically has as much weight as a vow. He's not making a vow unto God, he's making a, a vow unto another, but he's swearing by the Lord. It, it, it has great weight. But Jesus says, don't even, don't even do it. Don't, even if you're telling the truth, don't swear by the Lord. And he goes beyond that. He says, not just don't swear by the Lord, but he says, don't swear by God's throne or by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by even your own head. Because you have no control over any of it. Better simply to let your communication be yay Yay, nay, nay. If I say yes, it means yes. If I say no, it means no. My word is my bond. And if you have a track record of being truthful, then you don't need to swear, do you? If you know a man who tells the truth and they say, I will do this for you, you don't have to wonder because they tell the truth. Or if they tell you, I saw this or I did that, you don't have to wonder and Jesus said, any more than this comes of evil. Why? Because any more of this assumes that you can't be trusted, so you have to invoke something higher than yourself in order to help somebody feel like they can trust you. But if you're trustworthy, then you don't have to worry about that. Just be trustworthy is what Jesus is saying there. Swear not at all. James reiterates it. But above all things, my brethren. He says above all things. Now James has said a lot in his book. If you've ever studied the book of James, I mean, he talks about um, being a doer of the word and not a hearer. He talks about not being double-minded. He talks about all these things. And then he says, but above all things, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. That is a warning, is it not? lest ye fall into condemnation. As believers, we should not have to remind ourselves of this, but indeed, perhaps we do. God expects you to tell the truth. All the time and every time. If we are not truthful, how much more basic can it be in the Christian life than telling the truth? 
than being truthful. And if you always tell the truth, then there's never a reason to swear by God because your word is sufficient. And now it's time to get a little confrontational. It's easy enough for me to say, don't swear oaths. It changes a little bit when we say, always tell the truth, doesn't it? Always tell the truth to your parents. Always tell the truth to your spouse. Always tell the truth to your friends and loved ones. Always tell the truth to your church. Always tell the truth to your neighbors. Always tell the truth to your government. Could you imagine how different the world would be if people told the truth? If you could actually trust the stuff coming out of people's mouths? Could you imagine how different the election would have been this year if, you, if we could have trusted anything that came out of either of the candidates' mouths? Much less all of the, I mean, that's just presidential, much less all of the Congress. Could you imagine how, how different political elections could be if you could trust the things coming out of people's mouths? How different would it be walking through the store if you could trust what comes out of people's mouths? How different would it be going to work every day if you could trust what came out of people's mouths? If you could trust that employee, if you could trust that boss, if you could trust the store, if you could trust the salesman, how different would it be buying a car or whatever, anything, a new hot water heater? If you could walk into a store, ask questions to the people there, get legitimate, real answers and not wonder if they're actually just trying to sell you a piece of junk and walk out of that store having learned truthful information. How different would this world be? How different would our churches be if we would always tell the truth in them? How different would church interaction be if you could step into the doors of the church and you ought to be able to and know that your interaction is not masked, that we're not a bunch of hypocrites playing a game, that what's said is what's true, that, that, that we're being candid with one another, that we can trust the things coming out of each other's mouths, that, that we don't have to, we're not, we're not playing a game. And while the world will never bask in the light of complete truth until Jesus returns and compels it by force, you can reflect Christ every day by doing this one simple thing. Telling the truth. And it's going to get you into some tough spots because other people don't. But did Jesus not say the truth will make you free? Did Jesus not come saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life? So as we close this evening, I, I guess the simple question is this. Who is it that you have been lying to? Lying about what you do, lying about what you think, lying about where you go, lying about what you want. If you're going to vow a vow unto the Lord, you can do that. It's not a sin not to, but if you do vow a vow to the Lord, don't defer to pay it. But oaths, anything where you have to invoke something greater to prove that you're telling the truth, all that means is that your word itself is not trustworthy enough, so you have to invoke something greater. If your word is trustworthy enough, then you don't have to invoke an oath. You don't have to swear by your dead grandma. You don't have to swear by God. You don't have to swear by the Bible. I'll put my hand on a Bible. You get that stuff all the time in jail. People all the time. Oh yeah, I'm telling the truth. I'd, I'd put my hand on your Bible right now. What's that going to do? This book is nothing to you. But if I can trust the things coming out of your mouth and you can trust the things coming out of my mouth, then, then we're in good shape. God is not pleased when we lie. 
So the only thing that's left to do is simply to tell the truth. Vows, make sure you fearfully consider it. Oaths, no need. Just tell the truth. And those oaths will take care of themselves. Let's pray.